since we can't wait for the end for the war to end, since it's never going to end, we have to do it now. I'm Alan Salisbury, uh, founder and now chairman emeritus of the Coda Support Foundation. It's my pleasure to welcome our viewing and listening audience to Profiles in Service, where we explore the multiple dimensions of service, not just service to the nation in the military sense, but uh, all of the other aspects that really deserve mention and recognition in service to the nation, service to the community, and service. <coughs> to mankind as many people perform. Today, I'm thrilled to have as our guest, Jan C. Scruggs, a name which to those of us in the Vietnam generation uh, is a, uh, immediately evokes heroism because Jan not only served in Vietnam, but uh, he is the inspiration and founder and uh, the total force behind what today is the Vietnam Wall on the National Mall in the United States. And I think it's uh, one of the, if not the most visited memorial that we have in, in Washington. Uh, and that's a story in and of itself. And we'll, we'll touch on that certainly, but other aspects of Jan's service which are multidimensional. So Jan, uh, welcome to the Profiles in Service, I think we're episode number seven, uh, still just getting started in, in the uh, areas of service that we can touch on. Uh, but I'd like to start with uh, your early life growing up. Uh, grew up, I think, in Bowie, Maryland. Did service ever cross your mind uh, through your early years growing up and, and high school? I know following high school, you enlisted in the armed services. Uh, did you have an expectation at that time that since it was 1968 and, and the war in Vietnam was fully engaged and almost at its peak, uh, that you would be soon off to Vietnam by raising your right hand and taking the oath of allegiance? Yeah, uh, right before, you know, we all had to show up at Fort Hollibird and uh, they had this big uh, drill sergeant kind of guy. And he says, okay, now, if any of you guys are really afraid to go into the Army, you better make a run for it now and be back in an hour. We're going to catch you eventually. <laughs> if you can't hack it, this is the time to make your escape. And uh, But none of us did. We all thought it was kind of funny, although a couple of people really did start uh, uh, rethinking the whole thing. But uh, I, what I did was uh, volunteered for the draft in uh, 1968. And when you went in as and uh, as a draftee, the army would decide what kind of career path they would put you on. They had a lot of openings then for infantry, as a matter of fact. And uh, the most fascinating thing to me was after whatever five weeks in the army, uh, I was still eighteen years old. But they looked at my uh, my intelligence test and whatever I was maybe 125 or 130, but whatever it was, that was enough to become an army infantry officer <laughs> and go to the infantry school. And uh, 
you know, as a kid just learning how to shave, I really wasn't ready for that kind of responsibility. And uh, although sometimes I kind of regret it now, <laughs> but uh, it probably wasn't uh, as difficult as it seemed. Anyway, uh, yes, uh, it, it appeared to me that I would probably end up going to Vietnam. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, ended up with the 199th Light Infantry Brigade, very dramatic name. But in fact, it was a group. In 1969, the average Army Infantry Company was composed of about almost 90% draftees. And actually, it was higher in 1952 during the Korean War. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, not everyone is uh, adventurous enough, let's say, to want to become an infantryman in uh, real-life combat. So uh, it's important to realize that uh, the people I was with, I had such great respect for all of them. I mean, the, the officers, the, the NCOs, and just the people who, at my level who were usually 19, 20 years old. They had been drafted. They were certainly willing to go. Uh, none, none of them had particular, the ones I met had any particular uh, uh, exciting, were, were expecting, had to have an exciting time over there. As an infantryman, we all knew what could happen to us. So but as an infantryman, I was trained as a 11 Charlie as opposed to 11 Bravo. 11 Bravo is strictly rifle, the rifle soldier with the M16 or the M60 machine gun. But the 11 Charlie was the heavy weapons guy. So my weapons were the 90 millimeter recoilless rifle and the 81 millimeter mortar. The good thing about those two weapons is they really didn't, they were too heavy to carry. So we usually stayed at the fire base uh, and uh, did, you know, mortar missions different times of the day or night when there were targets uh, that had to be destroyed. Uh, we would drop a tube, the mortar shell down the tube and it would fly out and miraculously hit, hit a target maybe a mile away. So did that and uh, uh, had a, some very interesting things happen to me. I had a good uh, friend I made, his name was Jesus de Leon. He and I had the same exact birthday and they put him in, in the mortar platoon just for a couple of days, but they needed him, they needed somebody to go out right away and we take some casualties from landmines and they sent Jesus. I was kind of next in line. They didn't pick me and he was killed. And uh, he was killed just, a, I don't know, maybe three weeks, a month. And uh, after this whole thing, years after it happened uh, because of the internet, you know, now we, you can find the pictures of the people who gave their lives in Vietnam and you can make contact with their parents and, so forth. So Jesus Stalion never, never believed that he would re, he would return back uh, from Vietnam alive, and he was uh, correct in that. So that's what I did. I hung around all day, and uh, what happened later was when I we got into some real combat, and we became regular infantrymen. 
So you've experienced firsthand uh, what it's like to be uh, in, in a combat zone and, and engaged uh, directly in combat. As I recall, one of the most traumatic experiences that you had uh, was probably not uh, directly due to enemy action, uh, but there was an explosion in ammunition depot. You are absolutely correct. I was uh, um, shaving one morning at my mortar pit, and all of a sudden there was this huge explosion. And I ran there with a, uh, a bandage, combat bandage, to, you know, I figured some people had been hurt. They were more than hurt. I mean, the truck was on fire, which was filled with probably 300 pounds of 81 millimeter mortar rounds. One box of three mortar rounds had gone off when it was when it fell off the truck, because when they were on on this operation, it looks like they forgot to put in there was a retainer pin. You put the retainer pin in, which stops the the primer. So you pull the retain pull the pull it out before you fire. That completely arms the weapon. So that's what happened. But all these guys were people I knew, play softball together and talk and all of that sort of thing. And they were all dead. They were dying. We didn't save any of them, none of them. They all died. And uh, the, worst, the worst thing I'd ever been through. And uh, as my life went on, I met more, <laughs> more people who were actually there on that day as I traveled around raising money for the memorial. But that sort of gave me, I mean, it did give me post-traumatic stress disorder. The other event, which was noteworthy to me, was just a, a fellow named uh, Claude Van Andel, who was our, he was an E5 and he was a squad leader. He'd been wounded once and he got uh, malaria once. <laughs> he had a lot, of bad, a lot of bad luck. But on May 27th of uh, 1969, we were tangling with these North Vietnamese troops and they were sort of, you know, they would pop out of the bushes and they were keeping an eye on us. And we walked right into their amb ambush. And uh, Claude, he, he, he said, let me, let me go first on, and because this is a dangerous situation and everybody thought it was a stupid idea. And which it was because there was a 40 pound, Claymore mine mounted in, in a tree. It was command detonated, meaning somebody could be 50 yards away and push a little button and have the thing go off. And it, boom, it went off. It killed Claude Van Andel, our medic. One medic got shot through the eye. Uh, another medic got shot in the neck. They both survived. But the guy who was shot through the eye had complete and total brain damage, you know, ir irreparable. So uh, anyway, after this battle was over, I said, look, guys, I said, uh, I, I'll carry Claude, Claude's body out. And this guy who'd been there for a while says, Scruggs, that's not the way it works. He says, you've never carried a dead human being. You need six people to carry a dead human being. Why don't you help us put him in, in the body bag, which I did. And, you know, he kind of slumps down in the middle. So it really takes six people to do it right. Anyway, so th that was <laughs> Claude Van Handel and uh, one of the greatest guys. Uh, he did have some bad luck in, in life and, and in Vietnam, but uh, just a real character. And Nebraska Television 
did a story on on Claude Van Andel because he had this girlfriend in high school who was woken up at nine o'clock in the morning and she says she saw Claude Van Andel in her bedroom. And, and he said, I'm okay now. Everything's fine. I'll see you one day. So anyway, after this, uh, this, this fire, this all day firefight, I mean, we had helicopters shooting rockets and machine guns. Every, everything that would blow up was kind of placed on top of the enemy. I, I don't know how any of them survived. The next day, we, we were that morning, that night, we were put together with some tanks, M60 tanks, and some army personnel carriers. And we got another company. They were afraid we were going to get work, wiped out, I suppose. And the place was just crawling with North Vietnamese regulars. And these guys were very very proficient. They were good marksmen. And it's kind of like these guys in Ukraine right now <laughs> fighting the Russian. I mean, they were, to them, we were the Russians. Okay. So uh, it was quite fascinating. Anyway, I said, look, I have an idea. I'm going to take my army poncho, you know, during basic training, if you remember that, you have this poncho and you always put it behind your pistol belt. I'm going to put it back there because I know I'm going to get shot today or hit with something. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I, was, I got behind a tree and uh, in a rat tat tat, I looked where I was just laying before I got behind the tree. And all of a sudden, a little a three foot by two foot hole. Boom. It would have blown me in half. So some other guys came and we were shooting and and then three, they had three rounds left and they shot two. And uh, I was just laying there. And all of a sudden, my, uh, I couldn't use my right hand because the shrapnel had gone through the muscle. And I don't know what the hell it, it had done. I couldn't shoot my rifle anymore. But I could put another magazine in which I did, and uh, just kind of waited for a target. And then I just said to myself, wait a minute, I said, I think I'm bleeding to death. I don't think I want to. Sh <laughs> I don't think I have time to shoot anybody because I think I'm dying here. Then, as I was thinking that, it, it was kind of like an out of body experience in which I I saw my body down there, but I was or my spirit or something was sort of lifting up towards the trees as I was praying and said the said the Lord's prayer, which I continue to do on a daily basis for reasons you might imagine are logical. And uh, somebody- There are no drugs. atheists in foxholes, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Although I knew some atheists in Vietnam, including one of the guys who helped save me. <laughs> so anyway, they, they patched me up and, you know, I went to the hospital. And at the time the army had, army and Marine Corps had something called the uh, Sixth Convalescent Center at uh, Cameron Bay. So this is for guys who got shot in the arm or, you know, got grazed the shoulder, you know, they could be rehabilitated and put back into their units. And I, I was one of those guys. It took a couple of months and I was ready to get back to my unit and uh, completed my tour, which ended up being uh, just sort of a non-event. But I, I always, whenever there was an opportunity to go out as an infantryman, I always volunteered because uh, I kind of, 
I thought that being a mortar crewman was complete, could not be anything more boring than that because you're waiting for something to happen, which rarely happens. I mean, once every three or four days, there'd be a fire mission, you know, an immediate fire mission that had to be manned immediately, as opposed to something that at midnight, we're going to shoot the mortars off because we've found a base camp. So you've uh, introduced to me uh, three topics that I, I want to explore a little bit with you. Uh, we'll take it out of the timeline because I think they're very important. Uh, starting with, you mentioned earlier, 90% you thought of, of the troops that you were serving with were conscripted uh, and only yes. 10% volunteers. Actually 88% uh, according to the- uh, flash, flash forward and even today, uh, tell us what your relationship is to the draft. Well, we had we were fortunate to have a, a very fantastic, uh, good president. He was lucky and good in many ways, and that was Barack Obama. And uh, for, for reasons I've never completely figured out, uh, I was uh, given the opportunity. I, I was actually on the Selective Service Board. So what would happen is if we have a draft again, which we may one day, I hope, I hope not, but various people would say, look, I, I, I refuse to go to war. Or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll serve in a combat, non-combat role. And, and, you know, so we would sort that out. So I'm the chairman of the Selective Service uh, National Board of Appeals. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody else wanted the job, but uh, it kind of fell in my lap and I was happy to do it. Sure, so you country. got to serve uh, in a war with mostly drafted soldiers. I know this is quite different, but you've seen over the last 20 years what it is like to fire, uh, to f execute wars with a 100% volunteer force. Uh, I don't know if you've been able to draw any conclusions as to uh, the effectiveness of one versus the other. And before I just let you go forth on that. November 1968 was an election year, and uh, that was probably the peak of the anti-war movement in the United States. How do you feel that the draft situation affected the Vietnam War, and uh, are we better off with or without it today? Well, the draft is only used when there's a real emergency. I mean, you don't draft people because of the invasion of Panama or we're going to Grenada or something like that. You draft people because you're in a situation in which you're losing a lot of people and uh, you need to replenish the, the armed forces so that we can win the battles necessary to get the war over with. So the draft in the United States has uh, some beginnings. Uh, in a very big way during the Civil War, you know, the Union Army, everyone over 18 years of age or, or older in the Confederate states had to go in the Army, like it or not. The Union Army had uh, would sort of entice you to go into the military uh, by giving you, I think, a, an enlistment bonus of what was probably worth five or six thousand dollars at the time, more more for uh, general uh, officers. So. Now, now we have these little, short little wars, or sometimes longer wars, like the war on terror, and the casualties are much lower. 
Well, there's a reasons for this. One reason is we're using much better body armor. Uh, protects your your major organs, your head, you know, your eyes, and, and this is very good. We're using tactics in which uh, we, we try we try to persuade our allies to to take part in it. I mean, the Iraqi army eventually became a very big and important part of our uh, the effort to finish that whole thing. We uh, time in in Afghanistan. I mean, I think what did we lose around four thousand. Yeah. So. Yeah, four or five thousand people. So, but again, we, we cha- change the tactics and all of this, but you still have to rely upon those people who who volunteer. Yeah, you you uh, experienced firsthand being wounded and evacuated to uh, Cameron Bay, as you as you pointed out. And I'd be curious as to how long that might have taken. I think one of the reasons that uh, the casualty rates are, uh, or survivor uh, rates are so much higher today is that the quality of the medical care uh, and the speed with which in the golden hour or whatever they call it, people can be evacuated to where they're getting really quality uh, medical attention from the battlefield. Right. Uh, after I was hit by the enemy, I would say these guys I was with put together a uh, something to carry me with use some army ponchos and they carried me through the jungle. A helicopter was there within 20 minutes or half an hour and I was on my way to the 93rd evacuation hospital, which was an Air Force hospital with you know air conditioning and everything of course. And then then from there I went to an army hospital and there was no air conditioning there. <laughs> and from there went to uh, the convalescent center. But yes, uh, immediate uh, and quick evacuation is very important. Also, we have better trained and better equipped medics, medics as well. But uh, I don't. I don't believe in my lifetime that we will ever need a draft uh, again. I mentioned that uh, the election year was was going on, and Chicago in 1968 uh, was a major source of violent almost uh, protests against the war. Were you in Vietnam, uh, especially with the conscript uh, forces around you, uh, were you that cognizant of what was going on back in the States? Did it have an effect on morale of the troops? Yeah, we, we, uh, we were able to get Life magazine, Time magazine, the Army Times. Uh, there was Armed Forces Radio, in which there was, I remember once, it was during Woodstock, and they were uh, interviewing people at Woodstock, and then they would interview the troops in Vietnam about how they felt being there. So, I mean, we, we were exposed to uh, plenty of information about the anti-war activities. And, you know, probably the, the most recent research done, you asked the basic question, was it important for the United States to go to the war in, to the war in Vietnam? You know, the vast majority of the public says, big mistake, right? Something like 65%. Among Vietnam veterans, it's no different. It's the same percentage as it is among the general public, that this was not an exercise that that was important to the the extent that we took such measures to our national security. 
Now you can say you can certainly argue this all day and all night, and I think people should start argue it because you know it's an, not an irrelevant area. Is that uh, we from 1950 through the end of the Cold War, we had a lot of things going on. We had just had the Korean War, and which ended in 1953, and then in 1954, Ho Chi Minh had just beaten the entire French army and uh, resupplied by the United States. And as a matter of fact, we paid the salaries, I believe, of many of the French soldiers over there. So this seemed very important. Great books have been written. There's one right now by the son of Robert McNamara. And uh, the Vietnam War is still controversial. What, what did we learn from it? I'm not sure. We certainly learned one thing, which is to have fewer casualties. And uh, it's, it's important that we continue to have people volunteer for the military. And sometimes I think too much attention has gone on to the negative side of, of military life. I mean, these, a lot of people get out of the service, they have a lot of problems. But you know what? Military is a nice, little, nice way of life. You get to travel, you get to live in places like Spain and uh, go Italy, <laughs> get deployed in exotic locations, meet a lot of nice people become part of a bigger family. So if for a lot of people who are in that, that mindset, you, you, you're not going to find any, anything as good as being in the U.S. Army or, or, the, or the other branches as well. You, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that, that you developed PTSD. Uh, that term didn't exist, I don't believe, back then. And uh, certainly it's a major factor today. But how would you say it was recognized uh, by the leadership, uh, and I mean the, the troop leadership, uh, on the scene to, uh, at the time? Did they understand what had been earlier, probably uh, combat fatigue and, and a few other uh, euphemisms? But was, was that understood as a psychological condition that needed treatment? Not that I saw anyway. I mean, there, there were a lot of guys who were just scared to death. Infantry guys who, you know, there was a guy right after I was wounded. He, he, be, he begged the captain. He says, look, get me out of here, man. I don't want to die. I only have three weeks left in Vietnam. Please. He was crying. He said, please let me leave with Scruggs on the helicopter. And, and they, they didn't let him go. They, they needed every man they, they could. You know, they needed everybody with a rifle because we were in the middle of a storm. So here's the story of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I became a major player in the world of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, you were one of considered an expert at it after your service in Vietnam. You are correct. Well, I was getting a master's degree in psychological counseling from American University. And uh, I wrote two articles for the Washington Post, one article for military medicine with a co-author, Alan Berman, and got in front of Congress. And I said, look, something has to be done because there are many people, according to the research I did, questionnaire research, the more exposure they had to combat, the more psychological difficulties they had in their life or the higher use of drugs, alcohol, uh, bigger marital problems, you know, when, when you are the victim of, of uh, PTSD, and most victims of PTSD are female, are female, and that's because of the sexual violence that happens to, to women. 
I mean, it happens to women, you know, more than men. And uh, it's just uh, an awful thing. So I told Congress, look, we, we need this idea of a program called the Vet Center Program. And, and they made that happen. Uh, the Vet Center Program is now operating uh, throughout the United States. Every little small town's got a vet center. So you've got guys coming in there from the Korean War, from Vietnam War, but more likely, mostly nowadays from Iraq and Afghanistan, guys who have uh, psychological and other issues that they need, they need to talk it through. So speaking therapy is good. So off to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. So here I am, an expert on post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm a GS7 at the Department of Labor. And my wife and I go see this movie called The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro and uh, Christopher Walken. An interesting movie uh, about some guys in rural Pennsylvania who always go deer hunting and get their guns and all this type of thing. But, you know, going to war is like playing Russian roulette. I mean, you can be way back there in a place where you, you're just living like a normal human being, although there's the front lines a couple of miles away from you, you're very safe in Palusia, you're playing basketball with your buddies every day, and uh, somebody shoots you right through the head one day, as opposed to the guy who's out, out there for an entire year in 20 combat situations and never got a scratch. So I, that night, I stayed up all night, and uh, I, I said, you know, I'm going <laughs> to... I want to build a national Vietnam veterans memorial and just my, the complete, you know, audacity and stupidity of, of me thinking that I could actually do something this complicated. It was astounding that it ever worked, but basically when my father died, he, he left me, uh, I think I had like 20, 2,800 bucks in the bank. I said to my wife, I said, you know, I have to do this. I feel like, you know, I have to do this. And uh, she said, well, if you have to do it, <laughs> go ahead and do it. But, you know, we, we're not exactly wealthy people. So I, I had a press conference. Uh, I got some publicity. They said, how much do you need to build the memorial? I figured, well, I got a million dollars, right? Because you can do anything with a million dollars. That's how naive and stupid I was. So they called me up uh, in in July of, it was May 28th when I had the press conference. So that was May 28th, 1969 was when I was wounded. May 28th, 1979 was when I had the press conference. So they called me up from CBS News. And they said, how much money have you raised? You know, you need a million bucks. And I said, well, actually $144.50. <laughs> and I said, oh boy, this is not, this is not good, but it was good. Here's what I needed. I needed a team and I got the team from the U.S. military <laughs> at West Point. A guy named John P. Wheeler, who was uh, a genius, uh, sort of. I mean, he, he, he got a he got a degree from West Point, the Harvard Business School, and the Yale Law School. Not everybody I know is, <laughs> is able to pull that off. So he's a very brilliant guy. And uh, he got me together with some other guys who were uh, West Point graduates who also went to Harvard Business School, 
including a guy named Tom Schull, who no, no, now runs the Armed Forces Exchange Service. And, and, and Tom Schull was plugged into the, the administration, the Reagan administration. So we, we put together this whole plan. It was like a Harvard Business School problem. How do we get a national memorial built? Well, first thing we found out, to my surprise, you don't just build one because you like, you like, you feel like it. You build one because Congress has decided you can build one. So I had to start ch changing my myself, my life. I had to transform myself from being a very quiet kind of person to being very extroverted, to doing public speaking, you know, ha having confrontations with, you know, big people. I mean, senators, members of Congress. So I, I had to grow in order to make this whole thing work. And we had the largest architectural design competition in the history of Western civilization. Thank you for the Harvard Business School and you guys, you know, at West Point. That's what they said. That this is only one way to do this, Scruggs. We gotta let anyone over 18 years of age or older compete. And we did. And who won? Yes, Maya Ding Lin. <laughs> An Asian yeah. woman, yeah, young Asian woman at the time. Young Asian woman, she was in her last year at Yale. Both of her parents were from uh, taught uh, college at the University of Ohio in Athens. And her ancestors were some of the first people of Chinese ancestry who were taken to England for to be educated and so forth. She, she comes from a, quite a gene pool there. A very brilliant and charming woman. But uh, she was thrown into the snake pit of, of uh, Washington politics, and uh, she, she got bit battered uh, quite a bit verbally and uh, called names and, and everything else. And uh, even actually, when she took her first visit to see the completed memorial, which was on November 10, 1982, some wild-eyed Vietnam veteran looked like he was on crackers something started screaming at her and like, yeah, the hell are you doing putting this black gas here so all that uh ended one day alan uh, because the american public just fell in love with this memorial they liked it because of the way people interacted with it the way people brought things to it that it, it brought healing to people and uh such an amazing thing i feel so lucky in my life to have been able to do this. Uh, it has been uh, a, a very difficult and, and remain, has been a very difficult <laughs> thing to go through. When you do something like this, all of a sudden you kind of have a target on your back for the rest of your life. So <laughs> that's no good it. deed goes unpunished. As so yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, well, I think one of the factors that, and you know that far better than I, but the relatives, families of 58,000 people had a direct connection with that wall because there was a name on there that they could feel and touch and maybe even make a rubbing of. And uh, I think that brought home uh, how war comes home. And it's, it's not units and generals and admirals and big things like that that fight wars. It's individual people. 
And that's, that's so important. And I think that was the groundbreak, one of the groundbreaking aspects of Maya Lin's design. It seemed probably insurmountable to actually engrave 58,000 names on marble slabs. But one thing you don't understand is that each of the 1,400 uh, people who entered the competition had the same requirement. Everyone had to find a way to display the 58,000 names. The brilliance of Maya Ying Lin was that she did it in chronological order by date of death. So the beginning and the end of the Vietnam War meet in the center of the memorial, like yin and yang. So that was a pretty pretty brilliant thing and uh, Maya Lin and everyone did it. But I got this idea. That was your requirement? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Thank said, you. It's Thank you. Got to be done. Thank it's got to be done. Yeah, but I got the idea because I was a student of Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a protege of Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was a, you know, atheist, and, and this guy Carl Jung felt that there was all kinds of spiritual things that happened in our life. But he said every society has a societal archetype. They have these different archetypes, you know this, and but the a primary archetype is the person who puts himself or herself at risk to save the society, to save them from being conquered, uh, to, to winning some big battle. And even better if he sheds his own blood in defense, you know? So this is the archetype. And uh, therefore I would take the, this as a fundraising thing and as a thing as an aspect of the memorial that would make it different than most memorials in America. However, I go to Gettysburg and other, other Civil War battlefields that an interest of, of mine, and many of them have many, many names engraved. But this, this was really the big, the big one. The, the, bigger, the only one bigger is the Thiepval, which is in France. And that was the Somme's offensive. The British Army lost, uh, I think, 70,000 people in five to 10 days. It was a real uh, bloodbath. But that's the story behind the, the, the names on the wall and, and Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, a very fascinating person. Yes, he still has quite a following. There's even a little a Carl Jung Society here in Annapolis, Maryland. I have to drop by and see him sometime. Partly in response to the anxiety of many people had over the the design that she put forth. Uh, I guess it was an element of compromise where they f- agreed to add uh, Frederick Hart's sculptures of three soldiers. Uh, how did you feel about that then? And, and how do you feel about it today? I felt that the if it was done right, it would be excellent. And it was done right. And it is excellent. And everybody loves it. Now, this uh, strained our relationship with Maya Ying Lin, who did not want this statue put there, but we had to get it put there because we made a deal with, you know, H. Ross Perot and, you know, all these people who were pretty serious. I mean, very serious, angry people. (laughs) So we were going to put that statue there. We had no choice. We made an agreement. That's the way it was. But the way the statue has turned out is that the statue exists with an artistic dimension to it. It works with the wall. The statues are looking at the names on the wall. And so everything works just fine and it's great. Another thing is the Vietnam Women's Memorial. It's very nice from, uh, 
a uh, sculptress in uh, New Mexico. People love it. It's a nice place to, if you have a class, for example, of 25 or 30 people, you can sort of stand there with the, the three nurses and give a little lecture. I do that with some frequency when I take groups to see it. So it's a good, uh, it's a good thing. You must take a lot of pride in the fact that it, that memorial today is, I, I'm not sure whether it's first or, uh, but certainly in the very small top uh, visited memorials in, in Washington. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it's, it's definitely the, the most, most popular memorial in the, in the entire world in terms of people knowing about it. I mean, people, I've been with a group there once from Hiroshima. <laughs> Throughout the world, people know about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial because the design is so brilliant. Uh, in, in a good year, you know, COVID kind of screwed things up. But by and large, you, you get five and a half million people a year. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of people. You know, initially we had like two million people a year. So this is now the 40th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. So I, I would imagine probably 100, 150 million people have probably come to see it, quite frankly. I mean, if you have 5.5 5 million times 10, that's 55 million, right? Okay, it's times 20, that's 110 million. And then you know, going out to 40 years and you've got you know, 100, maybe more. So it's very popular. Everyone comes to see it when they come to Washington. And, uh, but on Veterans Day and Memorial Day and Armed Forces Day, uh, that's when a lot of people come. And when I was there, I expanded the, the, the list of people by, you know, many people die from Agent Orange and they, they die from other causes. They die from bullet wounds they received in Vietnam. You can't really put them on the memorial, not a lot of room left, but for people who died from Agent Orange suicide, uh, there's an Agent Orange plaque. And every year we have five or 600 people come to the, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and there's a little ceremony to honor them. Now, flash forward 40 years, as you point out, and there is underway in Washington an effort to build yet another memorial, this one to the global war on terror. You have some involvement in that. I think you've been a, a mentor uh, to, to the folks doing that. How did that come about? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? And, and uh, what advice would would you or did you give to them? Well, I've never really told the story publicly, but I will tell it now, and I don't care if you use it. But basically, in the year 2015, you know, I'd been retired since really October of 2014, and uh, I was kind of bored. And I said, you know what? This, this guy was killed. He was from Oklahoma, and uh, it really it kind of affected me. And I, I said, I said, there's one thing I do know how to do, and that's how to build a national memorial and how to work the press and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> so I put together a committee of people who, who would advise me on this, and you know, and you know, is this the time to do it yet? I mean, I talked to General Petraeus, very brilliant guy. I love talking to him. And uh, he felt this was a good time to sort of fix, fix the site for the memorial and then later work on the design. 
And I talked to other people and, and then, then I had a press conference in, in November of uh, 2015. And here I am at the Vietnam wall and I'm talking to army times about the, the need for a memorial for the people who fought for the global war on terror, because it's an ongoing war. It's never going to end in our lifetime. Uh, it, you know, it's always going to be there for us. So since we can't wait for the end, for the war to end, since it's never going to end, we have to do it now. So uh, I gave everything. I gave them a lot of money. I raised a lot of money for them. I turned it over to uh, some other people and, you know, I sort of did, did my work. I, I don't, <laughs> hey, I'm 73 years old. I'm not looking for new, new monuments to build in Washington. I've done that, but uh, I wanted to get this one started. It was really important uh, to me. I think it's important to the country. Global War on Terror Memorial, uh, gwot.org. You can get some information on it. It's a nice little place to make a donation to. And the code of support, I want you to know that I give my money to the code of support and I'm very happy to and proud to because Alan Salisbury, I know you've met him, he has developed brilliant uh, programs that really help these people who really need help, who just got out of the military, maybe they're unemployed, they need jobs, they need some counseling and uh, Alan and, and his crew uh, do some good work and so greatly appreciate it. Thank you for that, Jim. Uh, I might point out that about 15% of the clients that are helped by uh, the Code of Support Foundation are Vietnam veterans still needing help to pick up earlier. Uh, they, uh, they constitute a uh, disproportionate percentage of those who, especially of those veterans who are homeless today. And uh, I attribute that in large measure to the fact that we didn't take care of them properly when they came home 50 years ago. Yes, you, you can stave problems off by treating them before they get worse. And, and that was not done for these Vietnam guys. So it's, uh, as a society, I, I mean, I'm one of the youngest Vietnam veterans. I'm 72. Most of them are more like 78 or even 80. So it's a lot of people had a really rough time in their life because of that war. And uh, God bless them. Well, Jan, anything you, else you'd like to tell us about what you're doing today and uh, any observations you'd like to leave us with? You know, I think it's really important for people to realize that they have a lot more potential than uh, they, they may think they do. I mean, I'm just taking my own case of being this kind of shy, quiet guy who had to propel myself into the limelight nationally and get something built. I mean, it's like a storybook ending to this whole thing. And the fact that I was kind of a little nothing <laughs> corporal who came back from Vietnam uh, is kind of part of the story. But I'd like to, uh, I always encourage people to, look around in their local communities. I mean, maybe they like, you know, dog, help dog, dogs and cats find owners, or maybe do something more uh, human oriented. You know, people need uh, tutoring, people need uh, job skills. Uh, there's a lot of ways that, that you can involve yourself. I, I did some work in a local church here and, and right before this COVID thing started, 
just giving out food to uh, you know refugees and and people who end up in Annapolis from from other countries and people who are desperately poor. And uh, this church, and, and along with others, finds food from uh, these food pantries and from restaurants. And you know, it's a nice little thing to do. So I hope everybody will consider doing something like that in their uh, in their life. You are 73, I think you said now, and uh, you mentioned that when you retired, uh, you got bored and, and that got you to continue uh, your involvement. And uh, I will confess to being 85 years old now, uh, and uh, I am following the mantra of if you want to stay alive, stay engaged. Uh -huh. uh, and there are so many, as you point out, really great needs out there and really great organizations addressing those needs and if you don't see one that's addressing the need that you think is is so important start it yourself uh, a corporal can do that a, uh, a gs7 can do that and uh, i thank you for your service to the nation jan scruggs and i look forward to even more uh, to hear about your uh, accomplishments in the years to come yeah, well, keep up the good work. And I, uh, you have a, sort of an inspiring life if people will, will go on the internet and kind of punch in Alan Salisbury. I don't think I have a Wikipedia page like you do. You don't, you don't. You know, I, I've got a, big, a, a very big one, actually. There, by the way, there's a little town in Maryland called Salisbury, in case you've ever... Oh, yes. I, yes. Well, I go to the university occasionally to pick up a sweatshirt or something. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> Well, thank you much. We've been talking with Jan Scruggs, founder of The Wall, uh, and an uh, inspiration to the, the nation in terms of his accomplishments and his humbly addressing that anybody can do it. Uh, Jan Scruggs, I don't believe you're anybody, uh, but you, you are an inspiration to those who aspire to be a somebody. Thank you for your service again, and thank you, our listeners. Uh, this has been an episode of Profiles in Service, a podcast that explores the multi, multiple dimensions of service to the nation, service to the humanity, and service to uh, mankind. Thanks very much, Jim. podcast is powered by and copyright of the Code of Support Foundation. Code of Support presents Profiles and Service is hosted by Major General Alan B. Salisbury and produced by Carly Euler. The opinions of the guests on the show do not directly reflect the stance of the Code of Support Foundation. To learn more about Code of Support, please visit codeofsupport.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you or someone you know is a service member, veteran, caregiver, or military family member in need of assistance, please visit codeofsupport.org slash get help or search for free resources at patriotlink.org.